Everybody can sit down. Good to go. I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit today, so no no specific scripture text, but we are going to be probably mainly in Psalm 1 slash 119. Let's go ahead and pray first before we get going. Father, we do just thank you for for this time. We thank, thank you that we can come and worship you together in freedom and that we can sing and hear your word. So I just ask that you would speak to us today. God, that we would experience your word as powerful, as the most important message that we can hear. And I pray that you would encourage those who are discouraged, uh, that you would lift up those who are, who are down. God, that you would bring joy to those who are sad, and that for those who are in, in joy, um, that you would just bless them. So Lord, would you help us today to hear you speak by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the biggest inner struggles of my life growing up from probably adolescence to adulthood was the desire to hear the voice of God. I was raised in a church culture where the emphasis upon privately hearing God's voice apart from the Bible, was a big deal. Most people that I knew, at least it seemed that way to me, had, had seemed to hear that they had heard God speak to them. That God had guided them in some supernatural way to a particular decision. Whether it was a prophetic word to give somebody else, whether it was the interpretation of tongues during a church service or a word from God about who to marry or where to go to college or what to do with life, really anything at all, it felt as if most everyone had this experience except for me. And so at times I would suffer from decision-making paralysis because I never got to hear the audible voice of God. I could ask God for direction and heaven would seem silent. If having God speak to you was was normal Christian experience, why wasn't I having it? And so honestly, it's a question that still wreaks some inner havoc and affects me to this day. And maybe some of you have struggled with that too. Everything within you has wanted to hear God whisper something personally to you and you don't get anything. seems as if you're getting the silent treatment. So what I want to encourage you with today is that through the spiritual discipline of reading Scripture, you can hear God speak every single day. Every day you can hear the voice of God. I don't want to get into the question too much about whether God speaks outside of Scripture or only inside of the Scriptures, but what I will say is that despite my real struggles and admission of not hearing the voice of God outside of Scripture, I believe that God does speak in both ways. We know from the Scriptures themselves in Psalm 19 that God speaks in creation, right? God speaks in the sky and the stars. And I also believe that God didn't stop speaking personally, individually, once this book 
was put together and finished once the canon was closed. But that he does still speak today outside of the Scriptures, but always in line with the Scripture. Always. Never contradicting it. In a way, it would be easier for me just to say, no, you know what, it's never happened to me, so it can't happen to anyone. It can't happen to anybody else. But I think that that would be arrogant and prideful. I never want to have my own experience contradict the Scriptures. And I believe the Scriptures still teach that God still speaks. However, whether you disagree with that or not, whether, whether you are one who just believes that God only speaks in the Scriptures and will not speak in any kind of a separate way, what we can all agree upon as Christians is that God has spoken in creation, that God has spoken in the Scriptures, and chiefly that God has spoken in His Son, that God has spoken in Jesus. God is the speaking God who reveals Himself. The Scriptures are the voice and very breath of God. We don't have to be uncertain about how to hear God's voice because He gave us the Bible. The Apostle Paul told his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, a very familiar Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is is breathed out by God. So the idea here to use a metaphor is that the lungs of God breathed out the words written in the books of Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's not that God simply breathed on the writings of Moses or on the writings of Paul, but that those words that they wrote with their own hands, in their own culture, with their own personalities, that those words came from God Himself. It's not that the Scriptures are God, so the Bible isn't an idol, but that the Scriptures come from God through His authentic, not robotic, people that wrote Scripture. So you and I can know with certainty God's voice because it's in the Old and New Testaments that God's voice speaks to us authoritatively, personally, corporately. The sad thing is that many churches and Christians believe that that's true, that this is the voice of God, the Word of God, in theory, but in practice, sometimes we don't believe it much at all, or maybe just at times like this, when we come and sit and listen to it for a little bit. So many Christian churches, including ones like us, have statements of faith that state that the Scriptures are without error. The Word of God, the rule by which we live, the rule, the standard that we believe. But then week to week, day to day, we find it maybe a little boring. Maybe not the Word of God. It's easy to go elsewhere. It's easier to go to other words like self-talk, the way we talk to ourselves inside. It's easy to be prone to listen more to what culture says, how they define what good is, what life should be. It's easy to go to how we feel inside and have that be the ultimate meaning of our lives rather than what God has said. 
And so all too often, theologically in our heads, we can believe that this is the Word of God. Probably most of us would say, yep, it's God's Word. But practically, I think it's kind of hard to understand, maybe a little outdated. And we need to know that that is a satanic lie. It's a lie. When we only believe that the Bible is God's voice in theory, but don't take time to listen to His voice in practice, we're actually spiritually starving ourselves. The Gospel of Matthew that we've been going through tells us this. When Jesus was in the wilderness, when the devil came to Him and tempted Him, and the devil himself used the Word of God, Jesus responded to the devil, again, not using Jesus' power, but using the Scriptures, he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if Jesus, if God's Son, God in the flesh, lived on the written Word of God in Scripture, found that to be His food, how much more should we? We were made to live, to feast, to eat the Word of God. And so if we don't eat physically for several days, for weeks, for months, we're going to be unhealthy, right? We're going to be unhealthy people. And if we don't eat the Word of God for days, weeks, months, years, we're going to be spiritually unhealthy people. We also were not meant to be continually spoon-fed like an infant throughout our Christian life. It can be easy to rely on your pastors or your sermon podcasts or Sunday mornings for your only spiritual food and not learn to eat yourself. We have the wonderful privilege in America to have tons of Bibles, a bunch of Bibles, a bunch of translations. we got phones and tablets and devices with all kinds of Bible apps, whether they're free, whether they cost money. There's access everywhere to the Bible. And yet, for a supposed Christian nation, Americans don't read the Christian Bible all that much. A recent Barna study noted that in the last six years alone, we've seen unprecedented changes. Nearly a quarter of a century ago, in 1991, 45% of American adults told Barna they read the Bible at least once a week. In 2009, 46% reportedly did so. These percentages were remarkably consistent over the course of nearly two decades, but since 2009, Bible reading has become less widespread, especially among the youngest adults. As more and more millennials join the ranks of adulthood, the national average continues to weaken. Today, about one-third of all American adults report reading the Bible once a week or more. The percentage is highest among elders. 49% and lowest among millennials, 24%. So, another study, a Pew Research study in 2014, so just a few years ago, reported that Christians, again, that one was Americans, just in general. This is that Christians, again, using the broadest sense of the word, don't feel that attached to the Bible either. It said in 2014, about 4 in 10 Christians, so that's 42% is what they came up with, said reading the Bible or other religious materials, it's interesting, is an essential part of what being Christian means to them personally. 
So four in ten Christians. An additional 37% say that the Bible is important, but not essential to being a Christian. And 21% say reading the Bible is not an important part of their Christian identity. So you have four in ten, four out of ten people that say they're Christians, say, yeah, it's essential, along with other religious materials. About three, almost another four, say it's important, but it's not essential. Two out of the ten say it's not really an important part of Christian identity at all. So these stats are discouraging. And let's be honest, statistics change and where all the statistical data came from can be debatable and you run it different ways with different control groups and we could probably get all kinds of different answers. But I don't think it's that far out to agree that for all of our Bibles and Bible talk and Christianese, Christians don't spend much time in the Bible. Now, right at this point in the sermon, the last five minutes or so, is where this sermon may start to feel a little bit like a spanking. And all we really need is another voice to get up on Sunday mornings to tell us we've got to do better, we've got to read the Bible more, need to be a better Christian, change your habits, get disciplined. And this is where the sermon can turn into legalism or an attempt to make us vow you should be reading the Bible X times. You should do it for X amount of time. But that's not what I want to do. I want us to reframe the way we look at spiritual disciplines and specifically reading and hearing the Scriptures consistently in our lives to look at it a different way. Discipline is actually about freedom. Discipline is actually about freedom. Do you believe that? It's so we don't have to live in slavery to other things that are either less important or that are damaging. I see so many evidences in my own life of how a failure to be disciplined in particular areas in my life led me to different forms of enslavement that I still pay for today. And sometimes we can think of a rugged, we can think of discipline like it's a rugged taskmaster, like it's slavery, when discipline is actually what frees you up to do things that you really want to do. I was listening to one 20-year-old, excuse me, one 20-year Navy SEAL turned podcaster talk about this. This is what he said. Discipline equals freedom. And he says it in a very like masculine, rugged voice. The more discipline you have as a human, the more freedom you're going to have, which is completely counterintuitive. People think you are living this disciplined lifestyle, so that means you don't have any freedom. And it's actually the exact opposite. I have freedom because I have discipline. I have financial freedom because I have financial discipline. I have more time because I have the discipline to get up in the morning. End quote. And I think we tend to do some of the same things with the spiritual disciplines that the Navy SEAL says people tend to do with discipline in general. We think spiritual disciplines means we are being constricted. We're being bound up, tied to something. I've got to do it. We put Christian terms on it. The word spiritual discipline can sound like legalism when it's meant to be a habit for our spiritual health and for our spiritual freedom. So the reason consistent reading of scriptures is about freedom instead of legalism is because it's about grace. That's what Levi talked about last week in general with discipline. 
God speaking is an act of grace to his creatures. When God speaks, he didn't have to. He didn't have to tell us anything. He didn't have to reveal himself to us. But he chose, out of his own freedom, to speak. God's voice creates the world. God's voice redeems the world. His word brought life to the world and fullness and blessing in the world. And then when sin came into the world, His word set out to redeem what has fallen in the world and in human hearts. The first book of the Bible shows us that the voice of God creates all of life. Just His voice. The whole chapter of Genesis 1 features the voice of God speaking life into the world, speaking goodness and blessing and fullness over everything that He had made. Over and over again, there's a rhythm. And God said, and it was so. And God saw that it was good. And God said, and it was so. And God saw, and it was good. Over and over again. His voice brings light out of darkness, life out of nothing, blessing into the void, formlessness. His Word brings life. Attention to His Word is meant to make us flourish. It's meant to bless us. It's meant to enjoy goodness, the goodness of being alive as He intended it. It's not meant to make us bound up and enslaved to a life that values rules more than relationship. Obedience, obedience to what He says is meant to bring us into deeper goodness, deeper blessing, more humanity, more intimacy of relationship with Him and with other people. That's what obedience is for. Even when men and women sin, God didn't stop speaking to them. He could have. could have just said, no more, no more speech. Adam and Eve were judged when they sinned. God's voice brought judgment. Curse. And they hid. They hid from Him. They hid from His voice. They hid their bodies from His sight. What did God do? He gave them clothes. And yes, He spoke a curse and He spoke a promise. He gave a word of promise that the seed of Eve would one day crush the head of the one who twisted the Word of God. So the whole problem with the whole world began when our first parents paid more attention to the voice of someone else other than God. That's where it all started. What got us into this mess is listening to the voices of others more than the voice of God. That's what gets us into every mess. Where Eve got into trouble was listening to the voice of the serpent more than the voice of God. This is what it says in Genesis 3. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 3.13 Where Adam got into trouble was listening to the voice of his wife more than God. This is what it says. And to Adam, he, being God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 3.17 So we live in a world of competing voices. 
telling us all different kinds of things. In our inner world ourselves, we're telling us all of different kinds of things that seek to silence and to diminish the Word and voice of God. So other voices say that God's Word will make us miss out on something good. Listen to my voice. This is what's actually good for you. You want to be like God? This will make you be like God. This will make you feel like God. When in fact, it's God's Word that is always for life and meant to keep us from death. Always. So not only is the fact of God speaking an act of grace because He didn't have to reveal Himself, but the content, what that voice is made up of, is grace. Because His primary message to this fallen world, to sinners, is grace. And we see this throughout the whole Bible. The entire Scriptures show us this. In the Old Testament, the word of grace God gives to the world is found in promises. When you see a promise from God, that's grace. And in the New Testament, the word of grace God gives to the world is found in the fulfillment of promises, in the gospel, in the good news. God's primary promise to Abraham, when you go back to the Old Testament, so we did Genesis, we did Adam and Eve, Abraham, old Abraham, God speaks, makes a covenant with him, says all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you, through your seed. He's old. His wife is old. Old people don't have babies. But God promised. And they had a baby. And by believing God's Word, He was made righteous. He was given grace by believing the Word from God. And the promise God made to Abraham remained true throughout the whole people of God. That God wouldn't give up on His people. That they would fail, they would turn from Him, they would sin, they'd be judged, He'd bring them back over and over and over again. God would bring them back. That's what we read in the Bible. That's what the Bible tells us. His promise will come true. He will redeem the world. He will make a people for Himself. God never gives up on His sinful people throughout all of the Old Testament. The Old Testament God reveals Himself over and over again as one of steadfast love. We see that all over the Psalms. Steadfast love. In one Psalm, it's repeated a ton of times. That God brings judgment, yes, but mercy will always get the final word. And so when the Old Testament turns to the New Testament, the word of grace becomes flesh, enters into the mess. Jesus of Nazareth, the promise, is fulfilled. Jesus' whole life is about fulfilling all of the Old Testament law and the prophets. That's why as we're reading Matthew, we see it all over the place. This was to fulfill the Scriptures. This was to fulfill the Scriptures. Jesus' whole life was about fulfilling the Scriptures. He said this very thing to some disciples who hadn't recognized Him after He rose from the dead. And we see that in Luke 24. 25 to 27, they were discouraged, walking on the road. Some dude shows up. It's Jesus. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb, this is the guys talking, and found it just as the woman had said, meaning that Jesus was alive. But they didn't see him. And he, being Jesus, said to them, 
O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus tells them this was all about the Christ. This was all about me. So all of the Scriptures are meant to point to the grace of God in Him. Which is why the Gospel itself, the good news that Jesus is alive, is said to be itself a message of grace. Paul. So now we're getting a little further along. Genesis. I did a very fast run through through the rest of the Bible all the way to the New Testament. Jesus shows up. And then He's alive. And so they start spreading the news that He's alive. Paul, when he was leaving his beloved elders in Ephesus in Acts 20.32, it says, Paul entrusted them to God and the message of His grace. The message, the news, the word is a word of grace. So God speaking is His gracious act to reveal Himself to us and the content, the message, the word that is spoken is full to the brim of mercy. So this quick Bible overview is meant to encourage you to realize that the discipline of going to the Bible regularly is to experience the goodness and the grace of God. It's to remind you that it's true. So, how often do we do this? And this is where I think we get into trouble. We like mandates. Want a job to do. We use words that aren't even always in the Bible like daily quiet times, daily devotions. Time with Jesus, as if there's any other time, right? Now, these words aren't bad, but the Scriptures don't tell us a specific way that we must do it. You must do this in the morning. You've got to do this at night. You have to do it from this time slot to this time slot for this long. But there's no doubt that the Scriptures say that it is regular. It is consistent. There's a pattern, and there should be a pattern in our lives too. We know that David did this a lot. Psalms, what some people call the prayer book of the Bible for the church, in its initial chapter talks about this. So look at that, Psalm chapter 1, and I think this was read last week. Psalm chapter 1, 1 to 4. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So assuming that this psalm was David's, as most of the psalms in book one, if you notice, the psalm is actually made up of several books. Most of the psalms in book one are David's. David found his delight in the law, in the instruction of God, and he meditated on it day and night. He took great pleasure in God's word. And this isn't the only place in the Psalms that tells us how much David enjoys the Scriptures, enjoys the Old Testament Scriptures, not even all of the Old Testament Scriptures that we have. Listen to these verses scattered across Psalm 119, which again, if we assume David is the author, illustrates the kind of joy, the kind of passion that David had for the Bible. He delights in scriptures more than money. 
verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. He fixes his eyes on them and he resolves not to forget them. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word, verses 15 and 16. David's infatuated with them. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 20. He goes to them for counseling and therapy. Verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 28. Shows that when David is sad, he goes to them for strength. My soul melts away for sorrow. It's okay to be sad. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. David finds God's word comforting, not constricting, but comforting. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. David loves the Scriptures, meditates on them all the time, not just one time a day. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 97. He finds them like candy. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 103. David strives to obey them and not just know them. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Verse 112. Like a dog pants for water, he longs for them. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments, 131. When's the last time you did that? He puts his hopes in them. I, raise, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words, verse 147. They keep him awake at night. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise, verse 148. They are like finding a hidden treasure to him. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil, 162. He worships God seven times a day because of them. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. 164. He sings them. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. 172. Finally, and actually it really isn't finally. You've got to read the whole part of 119. Uh, in the last verse, we see that David strays from them. So all this love, all this passion, all this longing, all this panting, all this hope, all this singing, he strays for them, from them, even though he hasn't forgotten them. They're still there. He's still remembering them. He's still straying from them. He's still the David who said all that. He strays from them. And he knows that he can call out to God to come and find them when he strays. The last verse. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servants, for I do not forget your commandments. So this was the kind of relationship that David had with the Scriptures of the early Old Testament. His love for Scripture overflowed out of his love for the God of the Scriptures. Scripture meditation wasn't a checklist item for him. To mark off, well, got to do that in the morning. Got to finish my night that way. Click. And even though we know David failed and sinned miserably, he loved the Word of God and he loved the God of the Word. So the man after God's own heart was a man in connection with the Word of God. Those two things go hand in hand. What about that word meditation in Psalm 1? Meditation, the end of verse 2. Remember, David doesn't have a leather Bible on his lap. He doesn't have a Kindle through the watches of the night. The Hebrew word used here for meditation can imply recitation 
and memorization. The person who delights in Scripture takes it into his mind, rehearses it over and over and over again. Sometimes I wonder what would happen if I spent less time reading the Scriptures and actually memorized the Scriptures. We can read without meditating. According to one scholar, the origin of this word for meditation are used for a low sound like the cooing of a dove, Isaiah 38.14, or the growling of a lion, Isaiah 31.14. Eugene Peterson gives this great image for meditation as what his dog did with a bone. What his dog did with a bone. Gnawing at it playfully and hiding it to go find it again, privately to enjoy it in an unhurried way, again and again and again. This is what he writes. Hagah, or however you say that Hebrew word for meditation, is a word our Hebrew ancestors used for reading this kind of writing that deals with our souls. But meditate is far too tame a word for what is being signified. Meditate seems more suited to what I do in a quiet chapel on my knees with a candle on the altar, or what my wife does while sitting in a rose garden with a Bible on her lap. But when Isaiah's lion and my dog meditated, they chewed and swallowed, using teeth and tongue, stomach and intestines. Isaiah's lion meditated his prey. My dog meditated his bone. You and I meditate the revelation in Scripture and Jesus. End quote. That's meditation. When's the last time you did that with the Bible? The summer's a good time to start. Begin a discipline of not simply reading the Bible, but gnawing at it, swallowing it deep and whole into your soul. And when we do this, the psalmist tells us that we will be blessed and fruitful, that we will be stable and prosperous like a tree in a fertile land. And who doesn't want more of that? Who doesn't want more blessing, more prosperity? More stability. And these words, of course, have been corrupted for us by Instagram, which reduces blessing and prosperity to having a hot spouse or a really nice car or a great meal or cool kids, regular vacations, a ton of money. But they are nonetheless true. The person who practices regular meditation of Scripture is a blessed person, a person who's graced and favored by God, who experiences wholeness of soul no matter what is going on in life. So I want to get practical here for a minute. How are you and I going to do this this summer? How are you going to do it? And this is tricky again, like I said, because we're not going to find one text that prescribes a certain way. This is the way you've got to do it. This is the time you've got to do it. So let me just give you some ideas. And again, these are simply ideas. If you've never read the Bible all the way through, and I mean genealogies and Leviticus and everything, if you've never read the Bible all the way through, Maybe plan to do that. There's a Bible plan called the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. And what the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan, Google it, does is it gives you like 25 days in the month. And then it gives you five or six days off because people like me need days off so I can catch up on like 47 chapters. Um, that's, a helpful, that's a helpful one. And then you'll have read the whole Bible in a year. There is, the, there is um, the Robert Murray McChain plan. The Robert Murray McChain plan. That one's pretty intense. That one takes you through the Old Testament once, the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs twice, and what it does is it gives you one reading from the Old, one from the New, and then you have one Psalm or Proverb every single day. No breaks. 
And that's just one way to read Scripture. Read the whole thing. Or you could focus on just one book of the Bible. Say, you know what? For the summertime, I'm going to read Galatians. Maybe not every day. I'm going to read five verses a day. Ten verses a day. I'm going to read Galatians seven times a month. Whatever it is. Get to know Galatians. Steep yourself in it. Maybe grab a commentary or something to help you as you read it. Another idea is to journal. To journal when you read. This is something that I used to do, but haven't done for like a decade consistently. Sometimes journaling helps you do what Psalms is talking about. Helps you meditate the Scriptures. You write your prayers. You write what's going on. You interact with the text. Talk about your day. Just whatever. Meditate it. Say it over and over again. Read it. Get it into you. Journal. What about memorizing? So maybe don't read the Bible in a year. Don't read Galatians 75 times in three months. Just focus on memorizing. Say, I'm going to take those three verses this week and I'm just going to memorize those verses. I'm going to do a new verse every week or I'm just going to do one verse every month. But I'm going to do it every day and I'm going to get a note card and I'm going to put it in my pocket or I'm going to get my device out and I'm going to put it on my device or I'm going to, or I'm going to get a uh, sticky note and stick it on my um, dashboard or, or bathroom area. Do it that way, maybe. Meditate it, learn it over and over again. So I'm going to take it out seven times a day. Maybe that's better than reading four chapters in the morning. The point of Scripture should be, the point of this is that Scripture should be a part of your rhythm in life. And it should be planned because if there isn't a plan, it's probably not going to happen. One thing that Bill Hybels talks about and recommends is having a chair. And he gives this cool example. He has this little rocking chair up on the stage. And he says, where is your chair? Where is your place that you're going to meet with God? Maybe it's a specific chair or a specific part of the couch. Or it's on your knees. Or it's um, at the office desk or whatever. Have a place where it happens. It can be anywhere, but it should be somewhere. And so one thing we need to remember in all this is that there are different seasons in life, and I think this is really important, that may not consist of nice, quiet, peaceful rocking chairs overlooking the mountains for a prolonged Bible reading time. When you're single, the rhythm will be different than when you're married. When you have really young kids, the rhythm will be different than when you're retired. So if you get stuck on one way in which you practice the discipline all your life, when it fails, you'll probably get discouraged and you'll quit. Well, didn't read the Bible again this year. I guess I won't do it for the next seven. Figure something else out. Figure out a different rhythm or maybe change it up. One year, do it. Next year, do something different. Don't get discouraged. Don't quit. God does not love you more because you read the Bible through in a year. Give me a break. He doesn't. He doesn't love you more when you had your quiet time for the day. But make some kind of plan not to feel better about your status with God, which never changes, but to draw closer to Him, to get nearer to Him, to know Him. And plan it. Plan this discipline. Write it down. Tell somebody what you're going to do this summer. If you don't want to tell anybody, write it down. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll think about this week. You know what? This is what I'm going to try to do this summer. 
And then when you fail, God loves you just as much as he did when you had all that energy to go do it. The point is to make regular time to be with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the Scriptures in whatever way and whatever time you choose given the season you are in. The most important thing in our Scripture reading and meditation is that we read and listen to the Spirit's voice in the Bible to go directly to Jesus. The end goal is not relationship with the book. The end goal is relationship with Jesus. We discipline ourselves to read the Bible because we want to get to know Jesus more. And that's where the religious leaders went wrong of Jesus' day. They knew the Scriptures. They meditated on them. They searched them. They knew it by heart. A ton of it. And they missed the entire point. John 5, 37-40. John 5, 37-40. This is Jesus' words to the religious leaders. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. That's interesting because they have the Scriptures. His form you have never seen, and you do not have His Word abiding in you. What are you talking about, Jesus? They know it like crazy. For you do not believe the One whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. So we read the Bible, we meditate the Bible, not for the pages, but for the person. We misunderstand Scripture if it moves us away from Jesus. The religious leaders of the day didn't understand the Scriptures even though they knew them. And if you remember in Matthew, Jesus has been concerned about true understanding. The parable of the sower talks a lot about understanding. It's not just hearing the message, it's receiving the message by faith. So we discipline ourselves to engage with Jesus by faith in the Scriptures. Everything that He did was to fulfill them. So what we should be doing when we go to the Bible, no matter what testament we are in, old or new, is to quiet all of the voices around us, all of the voices inside of us, and to listen to the voice of God in the Scriptures so that we get to know the greatest word from God that has ever been known, the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you're like me, who desires to hear the voice of God, remember that the greatest word that God can ever give you has already been given. There is no better word from God than Jesus, Hebrews 1. There is no better, no greater word from God than Jesus. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The, the radiance and the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature is what God has spoken. He has given Himself. So we can live our lives in the freedom of knowing that God has made Himself known to us, not primarily by guiding us by an inner voice outside of the Bible, but by giving Himself for us. The Word taking on flesh, making Himself known, 
The last scripture I'll read, John 1, 14-18. This is from the NIV. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. Out of His fullness... We have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. So we dive into the Word of God written to get to know the Word of God who became flesh more. So devote yourself to the regular discipline of meditating on your Bibles to get more of Jesus. Go to your Bible in a disciplined and tangible way to get to know Him and to hear His voice. Do it like we do this in a tangible way. Communion in a disciplined, regular way every week to remind us that all that God has done for us in Jesus. We receive grace in the place of grace in the place of grace on top of grace. And that's what we do when we read Scripture. That's what we do as we take communion. Because we receive His body, we receive His blood, which brings us into relationship with God. All that we do in everything we do, including our spiritual disciplines, is to trust what He has done for us and to enter into the freedom that He has won for us, for you. Let's do it. Let's believe it. Let's enter into communion.